This is the podcast ICU Rounds. My name is Dr. Jeffrey Guy. I'm an associate professor of surgery and director of the Burn Center at the Vanderbilt University School of Medicine in Nashville, Tennessee. The diagnosis and treatment of a pulmonary embolism is perhaps one of the most feared complications that can occur in a critically ill or injured patient. In surgical patients, a great amount of energy is placed on on deterring the development of deep venous thrombosis, which could subsequently develop into pulmonary emboli, which it can be a potentially fatal complication. I'll never forget a patient I saw once as a resident who was up walking around on a post-op surgical patient, and as he walked past the nurse's station, the patient literally fell and went into full cardiopulmonary arrest from a sudden cardiac death, which was later found to be secondary to a pulmonary embolism. Depending on the clinical presentation, a pulmonary embolism could have a fatality the diagnosis rate of pulmonary embolism should be suspected 1-60% who really is complaining of something such as shortness of breath, chest pain, sustained hypotension without any obvious cause, such as from a GI bleed or traumatic bleed or perhaps even sepsis. The diagnosis is confirmed by objective tests on only about 20% of the patients. Now, in the United States, we have a very low threshold for the uh, potential uh, diagnosis and workup of a pulmonary embolism. So in the United States, uh, that diagnosis is confirmed in less than 20% of the time. Now, the diagnostic workup for these patients is actually uh, customized the severity of the patient's clinical presentation uh, or if the patient's uh, hemodynamically stable or unstable. Are they able to transport easily to radiology or are you... um, uh, have a high level of suspicion that the patient truly has a pulmonary embolism or are you just going through a diagnostic uh, algorithm. Now, the diagnosis of pulmonary embolism should follow a rather sequential diagnostic workup, and this consists of uh, the clinical probability that the patient actually has it, uh, is the patient uh, have D-dimer testing, and in some patients, particularly post-operative surgical patients or ICU patients, D-dimer testing is not very helpful but a patient presented in the emergency department D-dimer testing can be very helpful in determining um, whether you should go down a particular diagnostic algorithm or not. And then if you feel the patient's necessary requ- requires it, then you can get a CT scanning or even uh, um, the uh, uh, VQ scanning, which is becoming less and less uh, used. Now, we said the D-dimer is certainly of limited value in patients who have a high clinical probability of uh, uh, pulmonary embolism, as well as certain uh, surgical patients where the D-dimer will be uh, elevated regardless if the patient has a pulmonary embolism or not. Other groups of patients where the D-dimer is, is certainly not specific include those patients who have cancer, uh, pregnant women, uh, and the hospitalized patients as well as elderly patients. If you have a patient who the D-dimer may actually be helpful in, for instance, a patient coming off the street who is complaining of perhaps shortness of breath and they're not particularly a post-op surgical patient, um, a low or intermediate clinical probability of pulmonary embolism. Um, th- those type of patients, the normal results of a D-dimer as measured by a sensitive test really avoids unnecessary and expensive uh, additional testing such as a CT angiograms. Now, patients who are hemodynamically stable but they have a high clinical probability of a pulmonary embolism or those patients who have a high D-dimer should undergo uh, a CT angiogram to determine uh, whether the patient has a pulmonary embolism. Now, the negative predictive value of CT pulmonary angiography has been uh, marginally improved. It's estimated to be about 95 to 97 percent, um, and it can be improved by performing concomitant lower limb CT venography. Now, however, CT venography increases the overall radiation exposure of the patient uh, and should be avoided when possible. Now, in patients with a high clinical probability of pulmonary embolism, 
and negative findings on CT, the value of additional testing remains controversial. Now, venous ultrasonography uh, shows a rather deep venous thrombosis in less than 1% of the patients. Now, in pregnant women with clinical findings suggestive of pulmonary embolism and concern about radiation, um, this is overcome by the hazards of missing a potentially fatal diagnosis or exposing the, patient, the, the mother and the fetus unnecessary anticoagulant treatment. So even though you may feel that, gee, I really don't want to uh, expose this uh, pregnant woman to uh, radiation therapy, the risk of, of missing uh, or underdiagnosing the pulmonary embolism or saying that she is negative certainly out uh, um, is, is more risky than the uh, uh, radiation from the CT scan. And the uh, CT scan is certainly safer than putting a pregnant mother on anticoagulation therapy. Now, doing the CT angio, um, it does uh, deliver a higher dose of radiation to the mother, but a low dose to the fetus than, say, uh, VQ scanning. Now, in the BioPed 3 st- study, now that's basically considered a series of studies where uh, they've looked on the uh, diagnostic uh, approach to pulmonary embolism. It's called the prospective in- investigation of pulmonary embolism diagnosis, and there's been several bioped trials throughout the years. In that particular uh, study, uh, uh, magnetic resonance angiography was recently shown to have an insufficient sensitivity and a high rate of technical inadequate images when compared to the use of diagnosis of pulmonary embolism. So uh, uh, basically MRA or MRI is not helpful in the diagnosis of pulmonary embolism. Now in cases which multi-detector CT scanning is not available or in patients who have renal failure or they have an allergy to contrast dye, VQ scanning is still an alternative, uh, rather though it does seem rather anachronistic. I can't remember the actual time um, when uh, somebody had a VQ scan done who's been in my care or or that we've treated here uh, at our medical center. And I'll tell you, I can't remember the last time in 20 years that I've been a physician where I've actually heard anybody definitively say that somebody definitely had a pulmonary embolism based on the VQ uh, uh, scan. Now, a normal VQ scan essentially rules out a pulmonary embolism but uh, has a negative predictive value of about 97% when you actually get one that's actually read out as negative. However, that's the problem. A negative EQ scan seems like a pretty rare animal. A lung scan that has findings suggestive uh, of a high probability of pulmonary embolism has a positive predictive value about 85 to 90%. Again, when you actually get one where somebody really reads it out as a high probability VQ scan. However, VQ scanning is diagnostic and only about 30 to 50% of patients with suspected pulmonary embolism. One of the things that we typically will do uh, in a patient who is perhaps, say, critically ill is start out with a venous ultrasound of the lower extremities or a venous duplex looking for uh, evidence of deep venous thrombosis. And, and the reason why we would do that is, is that if the patient has uh, DVTs, then the next question is do we really need to proceed with uh, CT angio because if we have... Uh, the presence of DVTs, and we have an indication to start the patient on anticoagulation therapy. There is some difference uh, in that is that if, if for some reason the patient's hemodynamically labile and we would do perhaps more for their pulmonary embolism. But if you start with venous ultrasonography of the lower extremities, lung scanning or CT scanning can be avoided in about 10% of patients with suspected pulmonary embolism. Now, hemodynamically stable patients with suspected PE 
and ultrasonographically confirmed deep venous thrombosis can be given anticoagulant treatment without any further treatment. Uh, venous ultrasound should precede uh, imaging studies in pregnant women with suspected pulmonary embolism. Again, because once you've got that ticket, you don't need to push any farther. Or patients who have a relative contraindication uh, or an absolute contraindication to CT, and that may be people who have uh, poor renal function or people who have a documented um, allergy to the contrast material. Now, what do we do in our patients who are hemodynamically unstable? Um, uh, you should, uh, if you can move them, obviously a, T- a CT scan would be performed because it's about 90% sensitive for detecting emboli in the main pulmonary arteries. If you can't do a CT scan, if it's not available, uh, then you can proceed to echocardiography, and this can be used to confirm the presence of right ventricular dysfunction. In most patients who uh, have hemodynamic instability, pulmonary embolism, uh, a TEE may confirm the diagnosis by showing emboli in the main pulmonary arteries. Now, in patients who are so critical that you can't really transport them safely, thrombolytic therapy should be considered if there are unequivocal signs of right ventricular strain or overload based on the bedside echocardiography. Now, you can proceed to CT scan when the patient's condition has been stabilized and the patient can be moved safely. But if a patient still remains critical and you remain doubtful about the clinical management, then also you can also proceed to CT scan. Now, the application of uh, validated diagnostic algorithms has led to a decrease and the use of conventional pulmonary angiography. In fact, it's becoming uh, increasingly more rare to see this test performed for the diagnostic workup and confirmation of a pulmonary embolism. Really, the the use of pulmonary angiography, conventional pulmonary angiography, has really uh, been relegated to those rare cases in which uh, a catheter-based treatment may be indicated. So let's go back and kind of review all that we just said there. So your approach to a patient who has a suspected pulmonary embolism, they have perhaps new onset of uh, shortness of breath or chest pain, or they've had hypotension for which you don't have a really good explanation. They don't look septic. They're not bleeding. So you have a clinical probability assessment. You know, what is the likelihood that I think this patient has uh, a pulmonary embolism? Now then you could take those patients and you divide them into two camps, the hemodynamically stable and the hemodynamically unstable. Now, Let's focus on the unstable patients because those are the ones that are really kind of more interesting and fun. And um, those are the ones we're going to see in the ICU. In the hemodynamically unstable, you have those who are not critically ill and those who are critically ill and have a high clinical probability. So if you've got a patient who, I don't know, maybe they're in multiple trauma, they've got lots of fractures, uh, they've got a bad pulmonary contusion, you're finding septic shock, and then all of a sudden you have this nuance of potentially a pulmonary embolism. Um, those patients, probably the best course of action is to proceed directly to a transthoracic or a transesophageal echocardiography. And, you know, for the most part, the cardiologists, if, you know, they're not going to proceed to TEE um, without doing a transthoracic echo. There's been good data, particularly in the trauma literature, that, you know, you've got somebody who has a lot of thoracic trauma, that a transthoracic echo is not very helpful. But still, the cardiologists, and I think it, it may have to do with, with credential or, uh, for as far as billing issues, that they'll probably do the transthoracic echo first. It's less invasive, certainly probably more safe. But when you do your transthoracic or TEE, uh, if you have signs of right ventricular dysfunction, you basically have the pulmonary embolism is confirmed. If in that particular group of patients they see no right ventricular dysfunction, you have to search for an alternative diagnosis. Now, uh, so going back through that, 
We do our, our probability assessment. We have an unstable patient who's critically ill and has a high clinical probability of pulmonary embolism. We go to echocardiography. If we see RV strain, we've confirmed the diagnosis. Now, let's go to a patient who is hemodynamically unstable and not critically ill. Um, then you could proceed to CT. Uh, if CT is not available, then you go back down the pathway of getting the echocardiography. Now, once you've got the CT, you either confirm it or you don't confirm it. Now, let's go to the, the hemodynamically stable patient. Probably, um, for whatever reason, you know, the patient's having an uh, intermittent drop in their blood pressure. Uh, they have a increasing chest pain or shortness of breath, and, and you're just trying to do a confirm. You're trying to cover all your bases and make sure this patient doesn't have a pulmonary embolism. Well, if you have a high clinical probability, uh, maybe they've been in the hospital uh, for several days or weeks, perhaps they're a trauma patient or a cancer patient or have long bone fractures. Uh, in those circumstances, um, you're probably going to go right onto a CT scan. If you have a low or intermediate clinical probability um, and um, say it's not a cancer patient, it's not a pregnant woman, it's not a fresh post-operative patient, perhaps somebody coming in off the street, then you're going to do more of the D-dimer. If the D-dimer is normal, then your pulmonary embolism is rolled out. But if the D-dimer is elevated, then you have to uh, continue with the diagnostic evaluation. Basically what it means is that D-dimer is helpful if it's negative, if it's elevated, because a lot of things raise your D-dimer, it's not helpful. Next, we want to talk about the whole concept of risk stratification. We mentioned, is this patient a high probability or low probability for the development of pulmonary embolism? And that's what we really want to talk about, is, is who are those patients who um, are, are at risk? And it's really based on the clinical features and markers of, of myocardial dysfunction and injury. Now, shock and sustained hypotension identify patients who are at high risk for an adverse outcome. Now, in the International Cooperative Pulmonary Embolism Registry, the death rate was nearly 58% among hemodynamically unstable patients and about 15% among hemodynamically stable patients. So let's say that again. If you have a patient and they have a pulmonary embolism and they are hypotensive, the mortality rate is about 58%. However, if you have somebody who has a pulmonary embolism and they are not hemodynamically unstable, they are not hypotensive, the mortality rate in that series of patients is about 15%. Now, immobilization because of neurological disease, age, more than 75 years of age, patients who have cardiac or respiratory disease and cancer are risk factors for death among patients with acute pulmonary embolism. Another thing that you're going to see that really means your patient is not going to do well is any kind of sign of right ventricular dysfunction or stress at the time of the echocardiography. This is, whenever you see RV uh, stress, this has been associated with an increased mortality among patients who are suffering from acute pulmonary embolism. Right ventricular hypokinesis, this means basically kinesis, kinetic uh, means movement, hypo means less. So if you're, uh, somebody's doing echocardiography and they're seeing a uh, segment of the right ventricle uh, wall not moving as well as it should or any sign of right uh, ventricular dilation, this is be, these two uh, signs on echo are independent, independent predictors of an increased 30-day mortality among patients who are hemodynamically stable hemodynamically stable patients with a pulmonary embolism. Now, right ventricular dysfunction, as assessed by means of a CT scan, has been suggested to be an independent predictor of 30-day mortality on the basis of retrospective studies. 
levels of B-type natriuretic peptide, also known as BNP. This is something that I think is, is pretty cool. But um, there has been a study that showed that patients who have elevated levels of BNP have an increased risk of adverse in-hospital outcome as compared to patients who have normal levels of BNP. In fact, normal levels of BNP uh, and uh, pro-BNP were shown to have a nearly 100% negative predictive value for an adverse outcome in hemodynamically stable patients. What does this mean is that if you've got normal levels of BNP, statistically you're probably going to do okay. However, if you've got increased levels of BNP, again, you're at an increased risk for having a bad outcome. The reference for this is Glock, spelled, or, or clock, I should say. Not Glock like the gun, but gun, but clock spelled K-L-O-K and colleagues. American Journal of Respiratory Critical Care Medicine, 2008, volume 178, pages 425. Another biochemical marker that's commonly used um, in intensive care units is that of the troponin. Uh, troponin is, is commonly thinked about uh, in, in regards to myocardial ischemia. But patients who had pulmonary embolism and had elevated levels of troponin they had an increase in the short-term risk of death by a factor of 5.2 and an increase in the risk of death from pulmonary embolism by a factor of 9.4. So if you're drawing some of these blood tests, and what are you looking for? Well, we might want to look at echocardiography, see if we have signs of RV strain. That would segregate us into a high-risk patient population. Elevated BMP, you know, if it's elevated, yeah, we're going to have an increased risk of complications. If it's normal, we're probably going to be fine. But if you get an elevated troponin level, elevated troponin, 5.2 risk factor, uh, short-term um, of death, and an increase of death pulmonary embolism, um, of 9.4. So uh, elevated troponin in the face of pulmonary embolism is not a good thing. Now, absence of right ventricular dysfunction and normal troponin level can identify patients who are eligible for early discharge or even outpatient treatment. So clearly those things are are very helpful uh, in segregating uh, high-risk patients from low-risk patients in the evaluation and treatment of pulmonary embolism. So we have um, suspected our patient has pulmonary embolism. We have diagnosed it through one of the uh, aforementioned techniques. And now we've done some stratification as to uh, is this patient at high risk or low risk. Now we need to turn our attention to actually how do we treat this patient. Now, acute pulmonary embolism requires initial short-term therapy with rapid onset anticoagulation therapy followed by protracted use of vitamin K antagonists for a period of at least three months. In patients at high risk for recurrence, patients may require more extended therapy. Now, patients who have a high clinical probability of pulmonary embolism, anticoagulation treatment should be initiated while the initial diagnosis is confirmed. Um, Do not sit there and think, gee, I'm ordering a CAT scan because I feel the patient has a pulmonary embolism, and do not start anticoagulation until you've confirmed it. This is not considered standard of care. If I'm ordering a CAT scan and my reason for ordering that CAT scan is uh, rule out pulmonary embolism, start anticoagulation immediately. Now, the majority of patients who have acute pulmonary embolism are candidates for initial anticoagulation treatment with subcutaneous low molecular heparin, uh, fondoparanol, or uh, intravenous unfractionated heparin. Lovenox can be used typically at a dose of 1 milligram per kilogram of body weight given twice daily. Fondoparanol can also be given uh, in a once daily at a dose of about 5 milligrams for patients weighing less than 50 kilograms, about 7.5 milligrams for patients weighing 50 to 100 kilograms, and 10 milligrams for patients weighing more than 100 kilograms. Now, intravenous unfractionated heparin, uh, if you're an acronistic old guy, 
uh, unfractionated heparin uh, can is fine. Uh, should be given as initial bolus of 80 uh, units per kilo or 5,000 units, followed by a continuous infusion, usually started about 18 units per kilogram per hour, with adjustments to achieve a target-activated thromboplasm time that is 1.5 to 2.5 times a normal, according to a validated nomograms. Now, here are some of the issues with unfractionated heparin that warrant discussion. One of the nice things, I think, about Lovenox is that uh, the studies, at least in the cardiology literature for the management of acute myocardial ischemia, is that Lovenox reaches therapeutic levels of anticoagulation reliably and quickly when used at these therapeutic doses. However, the use of heparin, uh, typically people are seem to be afraid um, to use it. And what happens is patients take a long time to get therapeutically anticoagulated. And you need to kind of put in a risk stratification. And I, I don't have this article at hand, and I, I'm a little bit reluctant to even quote it. But I remember reading somewhere along the way, uh, and I, I always hate to kind of open with that kind of a statement, but that when we're treating a patient with pulmonary embolism, what is our immediate concern? Our immediate life-threatening concern, the reason why we anticoagulate patients, we are not going to dissolve that clot. That is not the intention of an anticoagulant such as Lovenox, um, Fodoparinol, uh, or uh, heparin. The idea is that we are preventing the growth, uh, the promulgation of that clot by providing an anticoagulant. Now, what are the risks to the patient is that we continue to allow that uh, clot to grow uh, or we under or we give them too little heparin. And so clearly by trying to be judicious and trying to be careful and taking 24 hours with the use of unfractionated heparin to get the patient anticoagulant is absolutely the wrong way to go. So I'm going to mention these doses again because I want you to use them. And if somebody comes back with a PTT that's 2.8 times you know, the activated thromboplastin time, that's not a reason to have a meltdown. What's a reason to have a meltdown is taking 6, 8, 10, 12, 24 hours to get the patient therapeutically anticoagulated in a high-index suspicion or a confirmed diagnosis of pulmonary embolism. That is the problem. So let's go over the doses of the unfractionated heparin again. 80 units per kilo or 5,000 units. This is, we're talking adult doses, followed by a continuous infusion starting at 18 units per kilogram per hour. Let's go back and uh, revisit uh, the low molecular weight heparins. They're really preferred over unfractionated heparin for really the reasons I've mentioned Really, their ease of use. Meta-analysis of 12 studies showed that treatment with weight-adjusted low molecular weight heparin had an efficiency and safety profile similar to that intravenous unfractionated heparin. Fondoparinol is shown to be effective and safe as intravenous unfractionated heparin and a large open-label study. Uh, since low molecular weight heparins and fondoparinol are excreted by the kidneys, unfractionated heparin should be considered in patients who have a creatinine clearance of less than 30 per minute. The incidence of major bleeding complications uh, with uh, these treatment strategies is only about 3% during hospital stay. And, and again, you know, um, bleeding is, is in most cases not death. I mean, so when you hear, oh, the patient may bleed. Well, the patient may die of their pulmonary embolism. So you need to kind of put that into context uh, as to, um, you know, whether you're afraid to use heparin or not in somebody who has a suspected or a confirmed uh, pulmonary embolism. 
I've already mentioned that the idea behind the heparins is not that they're going to actually dissolve the clot, but uh, the drugs that typically dissolve the clots, or maybe commonly referred to in a vernacular sense as the clot busters, are drugs called fibrinolytics. And studies have shown that in hemodynamically stable patients, IV thrombolysis reduced the rate of clinical deterioration, uh, mainly the need for secondary thrombolysis, but not the rate of death as compared to the use of unfractionated uh, heparin. So if you have a patient who's stable, there's really um, not going to be a survival advantage by adding the fibrinolytic. Uh, now, it's a different story for hemodynamically unstable patients because they're candidates for more aggressive treatments, such as uh, what we call pharmacological or mechanical thrombolysis. Now, um, thrombolysis is really indicated uh, or justified by the high rate of death among such patients and the faster resolution of the thromboembolic obstruction with the use of thrombolytics uh, than with anticoagulant therapy. Because what happens is when we're using an anticoagulant, we're basically, um, we're holding, you know, it's like uh, somebody's being a bully to another person, somebody grabs the bully and holds them, and the person who's getting picked up starts beating up on that bully. Because all we're really doing by the use of traditional anticoagulants, be it Lovenox or unfractionated heparin, is preventing the clot from growing. And by doing that, then we're allowing the, the patient's native uh, uh, fibrinolytic pathway to break down the clot. Um, but in circumstances where the patient is hemodynamically unstable, we can then can start talking about the need whether we can cause mechanical thrombolysis or pharmacological, i.e. drug uh, uh, thrombolysis. Now, mortality rate can be as high as 60% in untreated patients and even higher in patients who have a right heart thrombi. Um, and this could be reduced to 30% with prompt treatment with thrombolytics when they're indicated. Now, most recent meta-analyses have shown that IV thrombolysis was associated with a reduction of mortality among hemodynamically unstable patients who have a pulmonary embolism. Now, major bleeding is clearly more common with IV thrombolysis than with just routine anticoagulant therapy. Now, contraindications to thrombolytic therapy include intracranial disease, uncontrolled hypertension, recent major surgery or trauma, and that's typically defined, you know, recent major surgery or recent trauma is typically classified as within the past three weeks. Now, there are no conclusive findings from studies that compare different types of thrombolytic regimens in patients who have acute pulmonary embolism. Now, short infusion times, typically less than two hours, are recommended over prolonged infusion times since they achieve more rapid thrombolysis and are more probably associated with less bleeding. Now, initial anticoagulation with intravenous unfractionated heparin is appropriate if thrombolytic therapy is being considered. Now, percutaneous mechanical thrombectomy, or we consider a mechanical thrombectomy, uh, some people would also call this thrombus fragmentation or aspiration, as well as surgical embolectomy, should be restricted to high-risk patients with an absolute contraindication to pharmacological uh, thrombolytic treatment as well as in those patients whose thrombolytic treatment has not improved hemodynamic status. So somebody comes in, you've uh, tried the thrombolytic, uh, and they're not getting better, then you perhaps may need to consider um, proceeding on to uh, a mechanical uh, thrombectomy. Uh, Or you've got a um, a potential contraindication, as we mentioned, and just to go over those again, include things like intracranial disease, uncontrolled hypertension, or surgery in the past three weeks, or trauma in the past three weeks. This is data from a paper uh, from Co. KUO and colleagues. Uh, t- title of the paper is Catheter-Directed Therapy for Treatment of Massive Pulmonary Embolism, 
Systemic uh, Review and Meta-Analysis of Modern Techniques, Journal of Vascular Intervention Radiology, 2009, Volume 20, pages 1431 to 1440. And in this particular meta-analysis, some case series, catheter-directed therapy had a clinical success rate of 86% and a rate of major procedure complications of 2.4%. So if a patient qualifies for... um, uh, you know, mechanical thrombectomy, catheter-related uh, thrombectomy or catheter-directed therapy, 86% rate of success rate and only 2.4% rate of complication. Sounds pretty good. Now, the use of vena cava filters should be reserved for patients who have contraindication to anticoagulation therapy. Um, to avoid thrombus extension and recurrence, uh, such patients who even have an IVC filter should receive conventional course of anticoagulation therapy if and when the bleeding has been eliminated. So, again, just because you have a, a vena cava filter does not mean that you should not put the patient uh, on anticoagulation therapy. The other element of that is, is particularly if, the, if it's from a deep venous thrombosis, by not putting the patient on anticoagulation therapy, you almost seem to kind of increase the risk of the dreaded complications of what we call post-thrombetic syndrome, which is really a real hassle and a real morbidity to patients. A few years ago, and I think probably still this day, everybody's real um, enamored by all these retrievable uh, vena cava filters. Uh, I myself uh, uh, went and learned how to retrieve them and, and actually put them in a few patients, and I've never retrieved one. Um, and certainly retrievable filters may be an option for patients who are presumed to have time-limited contraindications to anticoagulant therapy or patients requiring procedures that are associated with an increased risk of bleeding. However, the use of retrieval filters has not resulted in an increase in filter retrieval. People just basically don't do it. The vitamin K antagonist, uh, this is basically Coumadin, uh, should be initiated as soon as possible, preferably on the first treatment day, and heparin should be discontinued when the INR has been at 2 or higher for 24 hours. Uh, um, The long-term management of patients with pulmonary embolism, um, and you need basically to determine patients who are at risk for recurrent thromboembolic events, mainly a secondary pulmonary embolism. The risk of recurrent pulmonary embolism is less than 1% while patients are receiving anticoagulation therapy. But that risk is 2 to 10% per year after the discontinuation of such a therapy. Um, so, you know, re- re- in reviewing that statistic again, 1% per year while the patient's on anticoagulation therapy, but the risks are 2 to 10% per year after discontinuation of the therapy. Risk factors for recurrent uh, emboli include uh, male, gender, patients, patients of, who uh, have a pulmonary embolism secondary um, to temporary IE, versus nice risk factor, recent surgery, um, lung bone fracture, uh, patients who have an idiopathic um, or unprovoked therapy with uh, vitamin K antagonists who have really about three months. In the absence of any now, really patients who have unprovoked pulmonary embolism, those who, say, for have cancer, and those with recurrent unprovoked pulmonary embolism, these patients are candidates for indefinite um, uh, treatment with um, um, Coumadin for anticoagulation. Coumadin is not really the only um, um, treatment for long-term anticoagulation. Uh, certainly low molecular heparin should be chosen over Coumadin for long-term therapy in patients who have cancer um, or um, pregnant women. So that's a brief overview of the diagnosis, management, and the treatment of uh, pulmonary embolism. Listen to the podcast, Surgery IC Rounds. My name is Jeff Guy. Uh, we have, um, you can download all the podcasts free on iTunes. If you enjoy the podcast, by all means, go to iTunes and leave positive feedback. That is very helpful. 
um, and, and continuing keeping this as a, a free podcast. There are other podcasts that are available. Uh, there's Pharmacology for the Pre-Hospital Professional that is a uh, corresponding podcast to go along with a uh, pharmacology book that I wrote. Uh, those, I think, are very helpful, not only if you're uh, in pre-hospital care, emergency care, but, again, I recommend them for our residents and our fellows. They, they go over the pharmacology, and I think in a reasonably uh, succinct uh, method. And then if you're interested in trauma care, there's uh, the PHTLS podcast, uh, Pre-Hospital Trauma Life Support. Um, there's IC Rounds on Facebook, kind of uh, community there. Um, and also, if you um, there's a iPod, there's IC Rounds application on iTunes. Uh, this has been developed by Wizard Media. Uh, I haven't developed it. Um, it works pretty well. I mean, sometimes people say, "Well, I have problems downloading a particular podcast." There are about a hundred podcasts, roughly about I think there's about close to ninety, really. And what happens is the server that we use to maintain the podcast archives all these podcasts. So if you're if it's not the first one or two podcasts, the most recent ones, they're basically considered archived on the server and they take a little bit longer for the server to pull it up. Depending on your connection speed, sometimes it'll act like it goes into an indefinite loop. Try again at a later time and it'll definitely pull them up. And that way you can have all the podcasting in your iPhone or iPod um, as well as your other devices um, on demand. Thanks for listening. Have a great day. <laughs>